If you're uh, visiting with us today, we're jumping back into um, a series in the book of Acts. It's Acts 13 today. This is, you see, number 22 in our series. We took a break for the fall, or for the summer, but now that we're uh, to the fall, we're picking back up, but we're picking up at a good place if you haven't been with us, because this marks a major uh, division um, in the way that Luke is describing uh, the narrative of the early church. So this is a really good place to to jump in. Um, Acts 13 marks a decisive change, not only in the book of Acts, but in the overall redemptive historical plans of God. Um, and we'll see how that's the case in just uh, a minute. But first, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 1 of that chapter through verse 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold... The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our God, and it endures forever. So as I mentioned, this is a decisive turning point in the narrative that we find in Acts um, and a decisive turning point in God's redemptive historical plan. Because, uh, as you'll recall, uh, this marks the beginning of the divinely commissioned um, responsibility uh, that the church was given to represent Jesus Not just to their friends, their neighbors, or even the neighboring countries, but to the ends of the earth, right? That was was, um, what Jesus said in Acts 1. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. Well, we've seen the Jerusalem witness. We've seen Judea and Samaria witness so far in Acts. Now, chapter 13, we're starting to push into the ends of the earth with this a small island in the Mediterranean Sea named Cyprus. This also marks the first of four journeys that Paul undertakes 
we commonly refer to them as Paul's missionary journeys, but we would do well to remember that they are God's missionary journeys, properly speaking. This is not Paul's mission. This is God's mission. Our interest, friends, or our desire in global missions, in evangelism, in converting souls, uh, will grow to the degree in which we understand that God cares about these things, that God cares about his gospel going forth to all people. I mean, Genesis 1 is a perfect example that God cares not just about a little part of the world, but about the whole world, because he made it all, after all. Or take Genesis chapter 10, we call it the Table of Nations, this meticulous listing of all the descendants that come from Noah and the various regions that they inhabit. They're, they're all under the, the watch care of God. He lists them here to show us that he cares about all peoples. Even God's electing love of Abraham is meant to be a blessing to all the nations. Remember, that's why he picks Abraham, so that you would be a blessing to all peoples. God's desire was always for all the people of the world to be so attracted to his nation, the the people of Israel, and their worship, and their God, that they would come, all people would come from the four corners of the earth to worship this God. When we come to the New Testament, we see that the mission has changed, although the goal has not. Because now, instead of waiting for the world to come in, the people of God are going out to the world. All that to say that the Great Commission, as we find it both in Matthew 28 and then um, recapitulated in certain language in Acts chapter 1, that shouldn't catch us off guard if we're reading our Bibles carefully, if we understand the heart of God. In Isaiah 49, one more example, he prophesied that he would send his servant uh, to, to grant salvation, to proclaim salvation, not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles, too, this is what we read in Isaiah 49. God says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation would reach the end of the earth. God's saying that I'm too grand, I'm too glorious to restrict my gospel salvation to just one people group it's too light a thing it's almost as though god is saying if we put this way it's almost like he's saying that's not worth my time no 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 no. i'm a god i'm the god of the universe i'm the god of the whole world and i want my salvation to go out to the whole world so salvation for israel a wonderful thing but it's not the whole thing in fact it's too light a thing he wants a worldwide Salvation, And so, friends, to the degree in which we see the glory of God, the greatness of God, indeed the heart of God for sinners, we will care about missions, just as the church in Acts chapter 13 cares about missions. And since it is God's mission, which we're going to come back to again and again in this sermon, since it's God's mission, it makes perfect sense, it does, uh, that the Holy Spirit factors prominently in Luke's uh, recounting of Paul's first missionary journey. The Holy Spirit is mentioned three times in the verses that we've looked at, and each time we're learning something about how the mission of God works. So first for our consideration this morning, note how God's mission is orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. God's mission orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. 
He's mentioned first in verse 2, where we find him, what's he doing? Setting apart Saul and Barnabas for the work of missions. Luke's describing this church in in Antioch. It's a diverse church. Um, The band of prophets and teachers in Antioch represents a small microcosm of this global salvation that God is after. So we look at some of these names there in verse 1. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Paul's from Tarsus, or Saul's from Tarsus. Simeon is likely a black African. Lucius from modern-day Libya, an Arabian area, uh, or an Arab area. Excuse me. Manian was a Roman, a friend of the enemy, Herod, and yet he'd become a friend of God. And so this, the different backgrounds here remind us of the different and diverse gifts that um, every member of the church is, is given and has. They're all prophets and teachers, verse 1 tells us that. And yet, clearly there's a specific gifting given to Saul and Barnabas. And that gifting is, is in the work of evangelism and missions in particular. right? Set, the Holy Spirit says, in verse 2, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And, and what he's calling them is rightly understood as work. It's not easy. It's not simple. It will be strenuous. It will be challenging. That's why the Holy Spirit must be the one to set people apart for it. Without him, we cannot accomplish such a task but that's also why the church uh, as a whole responds appropriately by by fasting and praying they want to ensure that they're not just diving into something jumping into something uh, without thinking it through carefully without making sure this is god's will and so they fast to ensure yes this is what the holy spirit wants when they determine that they send the men off do you see that verse three after they fasted and prayed they laid hands on them and they sent them off But then in the very next sentence, we're learning that, well, maybe even if they gave the boat a little shove, really, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So the church sent them off, verse 3, but verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And so here's the second thing that we learn about how the Holy Spirit orchestrates God's mission. First, he sets people apart for, for the work, but then he sends them into that work specifically. He provides opportunity. And we're learning here two uh, twin truths. First is this, and you need to know this, that God will never equip you for something and then not give you an opportunity to use that equipping, to not use those gifts. If he gives you a gift, and he does, Ephesians 4 says that we all have been given uh, gifts according to the grace of Christ, then you will have opportunity to use them. And if you think that is uh, not true, if you feel like, I just don't know what to do, you know, you think about the life of the church, I don't know where I fit in, I don't know what I could do to help out. If, if you think that this is not true, then perhaps you're not looking hard enough. Or perhaps you're not praying about it. Paul, who, you know, we could say is one of the most gifted men of the early church, if not the most gifted preacher, teacher, missionary, even Paul recognized he needed to always be praying to see where could he put his gifts to use. So think about what he says in Colossians. He asked the church there, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear. So he's praying, Lord, give me a, a way to, ser- uh, to use the gifts I know you've given me. Uh, and so if you feel like you don't have anywhere to serve, maybe you need to take that prayer and, and adapt it for your own situation. 
Lord, open up a door for me to use the gifting that I know, because your word tells me, I know you've given me. That's the first of these twin truths, that if God equips us, he'll give us an opportunity. But the second truth is almost even more reassuring, that God never sends us without equipping us. God never calls us into a work without giving us the grace we need to accomplish that work. He'll never call you and not equip you. We have a perfect example of that in this passage. We've seen how the Holy Spirit sets apart his servants, how he sends them into their calling. But thirdly, in verse 9, we see that he supplies. He doesn't only set apart, doesn't only send. He supplies them with what they need for the task at hand. Because what happens in, in this story is that they meet some opposition. Before the mission even gets off the ground, there's this threat. But verse 9 tells us that Paul handles that threat. What does it say? Filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Take comfort, friends, that we do not face threats to our faith on our own. Ever. Ever. Uh, The Holy Spirit supplies us with what we need to get by. Jesus promised that. Paul is experiencing that promise fulfilled. Now, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Remember in Luke 21. Um, He says to his disciples, they're going to want to lay hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Verse 13 of Luke 21, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Friends, whatever God calls us to, he equips us for. So relax. Take a deep breath. It's not all on you. There's not all this pressure on you. Must we obey God's commission and be witnesses? Absolutely. But the success of the church does not, uh, is not hanging the balance based on our performance or our skill. Praise God for that. You know, that would effectively make it our mission if that was true. But as we've said, it's not our mission. It's God's mission. And it's orchestrated every step by his spirit. And so that means if he calls us to face opposition, he will supply us with what we need, not only to to bear that opposition, but even to overcome it. Uh, But there will be opposition. This passage teaches us that God's mission is orchestrated by his spirit. That tells us, though, or that that means that it's still, though, opposed by the devil. Even if it's orchestrated by his spirit, it does not negate the fact that it's opposed by the devil. So we consider now God's mission opposed by the devil. And and Paul and Barnabas learn this right away. It's like they're barely off the boat. They're doing this successful preaching tour. Things seem to be going well when they face a serious opposition. Um. And we shouldn't be surprised that the journey has just begun and a threat has already occurred. We shouldn't be surprised because guess what? Unlike you and me, the devil is not lazy. He's not lazy. Evil doesn't, is never caught flat-footed. He's always prowling around seeking someone to devour. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they also have John. That's John Mark with them. They've been having this successful preaching tour 
that lands them in, in the kind of capital of Cyprus where a well-respected and prominent pagan official named Sergius Paulus He's interested in their message. Now, he is called the proconsul. That's an official title, an official position uh, from the Roman Empire, uh, someone who is sent by the empire to oversee a district or a, a particular province. So he is essentially the governor of this island, Cyprus. And when he hears of the stir that is taking place in his land, on account of these two missionaries who've shown up and are teaching and preaching in ways that people have never heard before, notice how he reacts. He doesn't say, well, bring them to me, I want to kill them. He doesn't say, uh, silence them. He doesn't say, well, show me your permit. No, he says, come and preach for me. Wow, what an, an amazing opportunity to influence a man who could influence the entire region. But there's a problem. One of the proconsul's advisors opposed Paul and Barnabas. Now, that man's name is Bar-Jesus, or he has two names, actually. Elemis is the other name, uh, which means magician. But Bar-Jesus, Bar is Hebrew for son, uh, and that's why Barnabas is the son of encouragement. That's why Bar Mitzvah is the time when a Jewish boy um, matures, and he can be called a son of God's law. He understands the Torah. Bar-Jesus means, well, the son of We could say the son of God's salvation, Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. He is the son of the God of salvation. It's a very Jewish name, but this man's hardly Jewish, right? He's a magician, uh, which is, as I said, what Elemis means. But God strictly forbid the use of the dark arts and sorcery and the like, divination. Hence, he's rightly called a false prophet, a pseudo-prophetes in the Greek, which really means that that he's a, a, a fraud, not so much that he's prophesying false things, although that's certainly true, but the idea here is that he's not properly sanctioned. He hasn't been called by God to fulfill this role, this office of prophet. He's not qualified. If he was, he would not have opposed God's mission, but he does. Why does he do it? Uh, the New Testament commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, concludes that it was likely for self-preservation. He says, quote, No doubt he suspected that if the proconsul paid too much attention to this new faith, his own services as a court magician would probably become superfluous. So he didn't want to lo- lose his spot at the cool table uh, on the entourage. So he opposes them. Luke tells us in verse 8 that he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the truth. You see, this is not passive. This is an active effort to turn somebody away from the gospel. Uh, The devil is not, you know, um, indifferent to what you believe. He's actively working to, to turn you away from Christ and to get you to stumble along this crooked way. Verse 9 Paul says that Bar-Jesus will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Does that, does that kind of sound familiar to any of you? He's kind of echoing uh, Isaiah, what Isaiah said of John the Baptist's ministry, right? That he's the one who comes and would cry, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. That's a true prophet, one who straightens out paths, makes the way to God clear. A false prophet makes the path crooked. And so for these Reasons far from proving himself to be a spokesman for God, Bar Jesus has actually aligned himself with the great adversary, the devil. And that's why Paul says there in 
verse 10, you son of a devil, you son of the devil. Um, you get the irony here, right? His name is Bar-Jesus, the God of, son of the God of salvation. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. The way you're acting, you are actually more like the son of the devil. That's the irony. That's the bit of play on words, but do you get the point? Now, this is really important to understand. Do you understand the point that Paul is making for us even today? It does not matter what you call yourself, and it does not matter what others call you. What matters is what God calls you. You cannot declare yourself to be a child of God. You can't. By nature, we are uh, children of the devil. And we can't be the ones to change that. Uh, We can't make ourselves an inheritor of God's salvation. And there are millions of people lost in the world who have bought into this lie that we can come to God on our own terms. And, And the attitude goes something like this. I can live this lifestyle, or I can believe these things, or I can act in these ways, and I can still claim that God will love me, and that God is for me, and I am his. And we say, why? Well, on what basis? Because that lifestyle and those uh, things you believe and the way in which you're acting does not comport with what we see in the scripture. So on what basis do you say that God is for you? Well... The reason that they say that is because they just couldn't bear it any other way. Right? There are many people who can't bear the thought of, on the one hand, not being able to live the life that they want to live, but also they can't bear the thought, on the other hand, having to admit that God is against them. And so just kind of like they, they do some, some sort of uh, sorcery, maybe like the kind Bar Jesus would do. They just say, hey, just like that, I'm going to reconcile the two. I'm, I'm just going to believe. I'm just going to say And you can't say otherwise that God is for me, and I can live this way, and I can believe these things, and I can act in this way. They say, God loves me because I say he loves me. Well, that wouldn't make him God, would it? See, if he had that kind of attitude that that rejects God's word and his call upon our lives, and we say, no, we're calling the shots, that makes us gods. And you know whose aim it is to make us gods? The devil. So Paul is absolutely right. Bar Jesus is more like the son of the devil than the son of the living God because the devil opposes the mission of God. And friends, that's what you need to know we are up against as a church. That's what we're up against as followers of Christ. That's, that's what you're up against anytime you try to live a holy life in a fallen world. Anytime you try to uh, share the gospel, we're up against nothing less than the forces of hell. And that's daunting. But again, we remember that we're not doing this on our own. This mission that we've been given is is just that. It's something that we've received. It's not ours. It's God's mission. He's pleased to use us. We've seen that it's been, been overseen and orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we also learn in this passage, finally, this morning, that God's mission overcomes by the word. It always overcomes. And it does so by his word. And if that's true, then it is so important that churches, and ours especially, I mean especially because you're part of this church, that churches do not compromise on the word of God. 
that we don't abandon this means or this method. It's all we have in one sense. It is our artillery. It's our defense. It's our sustenance. It's our food. It's our everything. If we don't have that, we might as well surrender now. But when we have the word of God, we have everything we need to overcome the opposition of the devil. You know, we learned that in that beloved Reformation hymn from Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress. Do you remember what he says there in the, I think it's the second stanza, the end of the second stanza into the third, when he talks about how um, there's the grim prince of darkness. He says, but we don't need to tremble. We don't need to be afraid of him. Why? Because he says, one little word shall fell him. One little word. What is that word? It's, it's not a magic incantation. It, it's not a secret password. It's the word of God. What, what's little about it is that it just takes a little faith. All you have to do is it's just, it's just believe in it. That's not that much, right? Just, just a little belief and you get all the full power of God's almighty word which is more than enough to overcome the work of the devil. That's what is required. Just a little faith in that word of God, and you are untouchable. Isn't that good news today? You cling to that word, and you are safe. You are successful in the mission of God. And the word is powerful in a twofold sense, uh, Martin Luther even talks about the power of the world. He, he says it's a little word. In the next line, he says it's the word above all earthly powers, right? Well, it's powerful in a twofold sense, in judgment and also in salvation. And we see that in our passage. We, we see that it's able to conquer enemies. Paul uh, pronounces the word of God's judgment upon Bar-Jesus and... Uh, what happens? Well, let's look together. Verse 11. Here's the word he declares. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This is a, this is a momentary, a temporary judgment that God uh, declares upon Bar-Jesus. And it's a it's a physical representation of a spiritual reality in his heart, this mist, this fog. Do you know the, the dangers of being caught uh, on the road at night when it's uh, foggy? Uh, this, this week, um, you know, sometimes sermons come together more easily than others, and the struggle I was having with this sermon was giving you guys a good illustration. I, I like to do that for you, give you a break, a mental break, and, and um, I couldn't think of anything, honestly. But then this article came up on the New York Times. Uh, it was like advertised to me about the effects of fog in San Francisco. This like months-long study had been done. I thought, hey, mist, fog, that's it. I'm all in. So I clicked to read it, and it's like, you have read your five free articles for the year. Subscribe now. Well, it was only, it was only $4, so... Carrie's just now finding out that I did subscribe to the New York Times <laughs> because I thought I need an illustration and, and this, this article will have it. So I paid the $4. Sorry, honey. Um, and in a year, it will actually jump to 14 so we have to remember that. Um, 
And I read this article, and it was like a 25-minute read. And there was nothing in there that I could use. So what I realized, though, it was like I was in the fog and in the mist and making stupid decisions at that moment, just like Bar-Jesus here, right? That's, that's the idea of this mist, is that you, it's not just that you can't walk around, you can't find your way, it's that you will make decisions that end in your destruction, stupid decisions, life-ending decisions. That's why in the Bible, every time, or not every time, oftentimes it speaks of the Holy Spirit as renewing our minds, of enlightening our eyes so that we can see the way forward. There's a word of judgment upon Bar-Jesus here, and he's, he's blinded. But then we see in verse 12 that while Bar-Jesus is groping about, he can't see anything. The proconsul, Sergius Paulus, his eyes are wide open. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what happened. You see the difference? Bar-Jesus is blinded now. Uh, Sergius Paulus sees what happens. But, but notice, this is really important, that what has happened, his seeing this event, that's the occasion for his belief, but it's not the source of his belief, because how does the verse end? For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It's the word. It comes back to that word above all earthly powers. That's what converts him. It's the word of God that saves this man. So a word of ju- a judgment that conquers and a word of salvation that converts. And here, the most important man in Cyprus, he bows the knee to the king of kings of whom Paul and Barnabas have preached. What effect will God's word have on you today? Is, is God declaring judgment or salvation? You know, you don't need to wait to find out. If you bow like like Sergius Paulus bows, and you can receive the blessings, the freedom of the gospel today, right now. My brothers and sisters, God has entrusted his church with such a massive mission, but it's one in which victory is not only possible, but it is inevitable, because we do have that word that is above all earthly powers. So how dare we abandon it as individuals or, or especially as a church? Programs don't win souls, as helpful as they might be. Social justice does not change hearts, important as it is. And waving flags outside the church that support the latest cultural fads or signal our virtue to the neighborhood is not going to convert a single person. Only the word of God does. That's why Paul says in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek, a Greek like like Sergius Paulus. It's the power of God unto salvation for people like you and me even. And when you realize that it is the word that has has course-corrected, has converted you from from hell and, and brought you and promised you heaven, 
When you realize it's that word from Jesus we heard from John 6, I'll, I'll never cast you out. When he says, come to me, all who are weary and have a laven. When we read in Romans 5 that even when we were enemies, Christ died for us. When we're told in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his son. So that if you believe in him, if you believe in his word and what he does, you will live forever. When you realize that's what's changed your life, then you are going to make sure that's what changes other people's lives. And nothing else. No other distractions. No other fluff. Only the word. The word is everything. The word that spoke this world into existence. God's word which became flesh and dwelt amongst us. God's word which promises in John fifteen seven, If my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, we have nothing without the word. And once we have his word, we have everything we need. To return to our friend Martin Luther once more and quote him, this is what he had to say when he was asked about the movement of Protestants who started to be known by his name, Lutherans. People asked, what do you think of this? And this is what he had to say. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? I simply taught, preached, wrote, otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept and drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to look into your mission, your mission to save sinners. As it begins in this new covenant context to the whole corners of of the world in Acts 13, and we're grateful to know that because your mission goes forth by your word and spirit, it will always be victorious. What we need is the faith to believe that, that it's not up to our ingenuity, our cleverness, our, our programs, our ministries. It's about the word. So would we be people of the word? At home, personally, privately, in family life, would we be always in your word, trusting your word, no matter how it might seem to conflict with the outside world? And as a church especially, would we be people who come eagerly, to hear from you because we recognize we do not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of our God and your word is a word that saves that saves us give us faith in it we pray in Jesus name amen